Hello and welcome to a special Winterval edition of the Culture File Debate from the Fidelio Trio Winter Chamber Music Festival here on St. Patrick's campus of Dublin City University. The Winter Festival is one of the fruits of the trio's innovative residency here at what was then St. Patrick's College, which was first held in 2013. A huge part of the residency and the festival, and indeed of the trio's existence, has been the commissioning and premiering of new work for trio, and indeed for the trio. Just this afternoon, down the road at the National Botanic Gardens, the trio gave three world premiere performances from Irish composers Siobhan Cleary, Fergal Dowling and Grainne Mulvey. And so this time we are going to take the moment to have a look at the art and craft and maybe even touch upon the business of commissioning new music working out how we go from that vertiginous position where there is nothing there but there could be anything to the audience taking their seats as they did up in the Botanic Gardens earlier today. Helping us to chronicle this journey are some of those at either end of the stick, or maybe carrot, who knows, we'll, we'll find out later this evening. In any case, we have with us today, Mary DeLay, who puts the piano in Piano Trio with the Fidelio Trio, responsible for a vast raft of commissioning of new works from Irish and international composers, and then for playing them too. Hello, Mary. Hello, Luke. Thanks for coming. And from the other end of the commissioning process are two of Ireland's most prominent contemporary composers, Rona Clark and John Buckley. Rona talked to us recently on Culture File about the huge body of choral work in her career celebrated in the 2022 release of Sempiternum and revealed that for her, uh, the great freedom of getting older as a composer is you do not care what people think. <laughs> I wonder, could we live by that? She has, of course, written for Trio and The Trio. Hello, Rona. Hello. And we have with us also Limerick-born John Buckley. Hi, John. He's one of Ireland's most celebrated composers associated with St. Patrick's College and with the Fidelio Trio and their residency. Coincidentally, and it can't quite be coincidentally, John's latest release is a collection of choral works with settings and arrangements from everything from Down by the Sally Gardens to the Song of the Jabberwocky. Anyone need any emergency gift ideas? There's some suggestions. Hello, John. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you too. John's Piano Trio had its uh, world premiere, I believe, at the very first Winter Chamber Music Festival um, back in 2013. Performed by which trio? Any guesses? <laughs> Performed by the Fidelio Trio, I think you might know by now. So there's a lot of the history and um, we're going to tonight have a little go at some of the stories. Mary, seeing as you've just come down from the Botanic Gardens and uh, playing these three world premieres as well as new, new solo works, I thought you'd tell us a little bit about these latest works and the, and the process that brought them together. Here the seed uh, might be a seed because it's actually <laughs> inspired by the, the Botanic Gardens was what you're, you're asking to. To people to think about. So how, how, how did that process work? So this actually came about, uh, I believe, through Fergal Dowling, who's here with us in the audience. So we're going to be talking about collaborations further on, hopefully. And this was very much a collaborative effort, tying together venues, festivals, performance opportunities, funding, realising and figuring out how best to create a body of work. There were actually four works as part of this project. Um, the actual workshop process with Dara, whether there's going to be electronics in the pieces or not, and then to go back to the Botanic Gardens, um, an incredible venue that our festival, which is now 
partnered with Glass Drum, this really incredible cultural organisation in this part of Dublin, uh, which again has grown since our residency here. Um, tying together that amazing room with that amazing view and uh, giving the composers a little seed of a starting point, but not prescriptive. So the four pieces entirely different and unique, obviously, but even how the composers chose to relate to that little theme is really um, something very, very special. So we have individual works, but they also work incredibly well as a collection. It's always been very important to us um, as much as we can that pieces travel and also have a life after the first performance. You don't get a piece and then do the dutiful one performance and then just, just let it go and just go back to playing only old music. The more you perform any music, the more variety of perspectives you have on it. You might play a piece and then not play it for five years and then come back um, just like we treat older music. But in, in programming new work, you, you also want to see its conversations with older works Absolutely. and rediscoveries. And from, again, to tie in the performer's perspective into it, we get asked this a lot, particularly in workshops with younger composers. We don't treat our sound or our musicianship differently because we're playing a piece that was written in 2023 to a piece that was written in, you know, 1790. It's, it's not that kind of um, existence. So we would give everything that we do that home within our voice, our sound, our ensemble relationship, which is, you know, again, it's not something that is just thrown together. We're lucky that we are still going after all these years. So what we wanted to do for this conversation, as well as uh, talking about music, we're, we're going to listen to a few pieces of music that one way or the other, the uh, trio is responsible for. Uh, and the first piece we were going to hear, we're going to get some flavours of the music, and the first piece we were going to hear was something by John Buckley, which is early on in the process I mentioned at the start. And um, we're going to hear the second movement from your piano trio, uh, John, called Kaleidoscope. We're not going to hear, unfortunately, the, the whole of the second movement, or even the whole of the trio, but that is open and available to people with an internet connection. But we're going to play a little sample from the Kaleidoscope section. Maybe you'd just tell us a little bit about it before we hear it, John. Much of my music is inspired by the natural world, by light and by poetic imagery. But this piano trio is the exception to all of that. It's inspired by mechanical devices. I think you can build a piece of music around almost any concept. And my concept here was to take three separate devices that seem to me to have the possibility of musical implications. So the first movement, which we won't hear, it's called Echoes and Shadows or Shadows and Echoes. It's based on the idea of the flickering images of the old magic lantern. The second movement, Kaleidoscope, is based on the imagery of the, a toy that children have that you look into. <clears throat> I'm fascinated by the idea that you can just turn the kaleidoscope and the same pieces of glass now give a slightly different image. So in this piece, uh, the, this movement called Kaleidoscope, it gives the imagery of one little musical seed, if you want to use the term you used already, or germ, that's rotated through 12 prisms. It's the same music all the time, but yet it's different all the time. Sometimes it's played higher, sometimes it's played backwards, sometimes it's played upside down, sometimes it's played backwards and upside down, and it's linked together in various ways. And you can almost every 12 seconds or so hear the kaleidoscope being clicked to the next slightly different image. So that's the idea behind that. The last movement, by the way, just in case you're interested, is inspired by music boxes. 
which are both magical and absolutely frightening devices. And that's what the music expresses in the third movement. There's enough terror in a kaleidoscope, though. It's... <laughs> so we, we, we will just hear a few of those repetitions, uh, roughly five, I'm guessing, oh, from okay. your description if, if, there. A minute, there should be maybe five, yeah. <laughs> composer likes to hear their music fading <laughs> but if you forgive that Mary maybe you tell us a little bit about how that piece came into being from your end well um, we've obviously known John Buckley and played lots of his music before the residency but um, this germ of a starting point for this trio I suppose when was uh, through our residency here from 2012 to 2015 uh, where we then we're fortunate to spend for six to eight weeks of the year a lot of time with uh, John and Rona in particular. So there would obviously have been conversations. Um, I don't know whether subliminally or not, John and, and Rona would have been hearing us play. We played in their classes, in their lectures. We get lots of concerts, um, lots of different, different projects during the time here. Um, so through conversation, not necessarily thematically about, I want to write you a piano trio about, about this. Well, I thought maybe John would arrive with a kaleidoscope <laughs> one day and say, this is it, here's no. our theme. <laughs> but the, having those connections um, and having conversations about music generally, not necessarily about your own music. Uh, John, I remember, taught a fantastic class uh, where he deconstructed a movement of a Brahms piano trio, for example. So you're generating these ideas through having these conversations and also hearing one another play, learning about one another's interests and influences. And then, of course, there would have been the funding application process, which uh, would involve obviously form filling, but really thinking about the motivation behind this. Not that you can attach a value to things, but proving the necessity for actually bringing this work into life. Thankfully, we were successful and went on to receive this fantastic piece. So you have a slightly positive take on form filling in, no, in the I, arts uh, then. <laughs> it helps well, crystallise your vision in some way. It could have been a lot worse. You, I suppose you get good at it as well as the other thing. I don't know. But, it's like reading reviews, that, you know. Absolutely exceptional at making applications. I've read some of her grant applications and their models to be adhered to by anybody here who's interested in commissioning Rona or even commissioning me. <laughs> All that and she plays the piano too. It's remarkable. <laughs> so the next piece we're going to hear is from Rona, Rona Clark, uh, which is the piano trio number four, A Different Game, uh, which again we're going to hear a section from. I wonder, would you tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening there or and particularly what maybe what's happening in the, in the, in the first movement? I never use the same process in, in composing new pieces. It, you know, it can be something quite different from piece to piece. So in this case, what I wanted to do was try and get something very spontaneous, something a bit different. And um, 
largely influenced indeed by what Mary was saying, you know, about um, the, the many, many workshops that I sat in, for instance, especially postgraduate workshops and international students came and, you know, the discussions on the scores and it, it provoked me to, to seek something a little bit different. So in this case, I sat at my controller keyboard at the computer into a piece of software and thought, I'm going to do whatever I want now and get something, you know, energetic and spontaneous. So that's how it started. Now, that did not make the piece. What came out was not the piece, but it gave me seeds. We're back to seeds again. It gave me some material that I could then play with and work with. Um, you know, I always compare composing to cooking. You know, so it gave me a few ingredients that I could combine in different ways and make something of. And in the case of the first one, um, the first movement here, they're sort of sharp shock gestures, you know, very, very, very jagged kind of gestures at first. And I'm not sure which section you're playing, but at later it goes into something, you know, more repetitive between the instruments, a sort of counterpoint with a single idea. Well, we hear it now. As I say, we're slightly in the small plates business. If, if, if uh, composing is cooking, we're definitely got something to share here. So um, this is Rona Clark's a section, a very small section from Rona Clark's Piano Trio Number no. Four, A Different Game. <laughs> fade again. <laughs> a, a crucial thing about that piece as a, is that as well as getting a performance, it became part of, of, an, of a Fidelio Trio album, um, the first collection. Mary, how important was that, um, was the fact that the, the uh, performance would be immortalised or captured? How, how important was that to the plan in the beginning? Oh, was it in the plan at the very beginning? It wasn't, no. But I would have to say, after all the work, it was not an easy piece. And after all the work that was put into it, it's wonderful to have it, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, put, I was wondering with your, your kind of interest in what is live and the, the improvisatory thing, the improvisatory feel, how that particularly feels to kind of capture and lock down a piece like that. Um, I, only important in, in yielding the material and something that sounds vital and, and, and uh, you know, spontaneous, really. Uh, but I mean, do you think that, that, that uh, the feeling uh, ends up on the record? That's what it's kind of, you know, the, the, the residency and the trio in general is about providing this absolutely unique resource of live music. But there is, there is this thing where things are also getting uh, captured in an interesting way. And I, I just wondered how you, how you were feeling about the, the kind of relationship of those things. Well, can I say something? Uh, <laughs> um, of course, we had the 
privilege, um, but also something that makes the recording process really special is when the composer can actually be there with you. Um, and these two good people absolutely were. Um, so also we approached the recording situation knowing the piece and having played it lots of times normally. So you are in a very concentrated environment, obviously, and you are wanting every single version of what you play to be at the best of your ability. So it's not about cutting it down into these tiny, tiny, tiny sections. The feeling that you're getting, hopefully, is something which is very um, much like you would in a live performance because you're inside the music, you've played it so many times. You can even discover new things in a recording, you know, in a recording process where the composers are there. You're also hearing your piece like lots of times in a day while you are going through this process. So it's it's further growth and it's like a, snap, a snapshot really, isn't it, of hopefully very high quality that is representative of the life um, of the piece, not, not a kind of a dry artifact. I think I should perhaps add that <clears throat> any recording session, the CD that emerges from it, should represent the best of what happened during that recording session. A live performance is entirely different. You can put up with noises and coughs and all sorts of things. You can't on a CD. They've got to be clean and they've got to be edited, but it must be the best of, say, the three-hour session that the CD comes out of. It's not, no one is ever pretending that it's a fully live performance from start to finish. But by and large, the trio does record long stretches and then maybe wants to insert a little take of a small bit of it and so forth. So it's not like it's cut down into recording five seconds and adding out onto the next five. So there's a sense of spontaneity through the recording process, but there's also a sense of, of what I would call perfection actually in the, in the recording. And that's really vital for any music that I write. I have no interest in improvisation whatsoever. <clears throat> it just doesn't interest me as, as a process of music making. And I like everything to be as close to perfection as one can make it as a composer. You never do, of course, but you aim to make your piece watertight. And certainly in the performances and the recordings, they can be made as watertight as possible. And you get into a zone, don't you? In of a course, recording. Yeah. And I wonder what what uh, place the recordings then play in the life cycle of a piece. You know, it's been commissioned, but if you have put this skill and art into making a recording, is that helping? Is that how much is that enhancing the chances there will be more performances or the piece will find its way in the world more? Oh, I think it enhances it enormously. Uh, even music as obscure as that which I write gets thousands of listens on Spotify, for example. Uh, do you get I paid for them? Well, that's another <laughs> issue. The, the finance is another issue entirely, which we can talk about. But at least there's some exposure being got by the fact that it's on Spotify and on Apple Music. And it can even get broadcasts from those, maybe on lyrics sometimes. Mm. Uh, and certainly <laughs> it's they get... It's been known to happen. It, it's been known to happen. Yeah, so it gives great exposure. And there's also a, a permanence to the music. It's a, it's a record of it. It's, an, it's important archivally, I think. And the fact that it's available to the public is absolutely fantastic because how many people can get to a concert to hear the music live? Even though the three are always playing and they're constantly repeating pieces, the fact that it's available on open access, more or less, on the internet is just fantastic, I think. I wanted to uh, come to another piece of music. Now, this is one um, by a composer who isn't, isn't here, um, by David Fennessy. 
uh, which is another Fidelio uh, commission, which I suppose tells us um, that there are several ways of a, that a piece might come into being. And, there, and there's a particular uh, story about this piece, which is dedicated to, to Spencer Boney, and, uh, who was a, a, an early member of the trio. But maybe we'll have a little listen to the piece, and, and then maybe you'll tell us a little bit about how that happened, Mary. Yeah. So this is uh, David Fennessy's Piano Trio number no. 2, Spencer Boney. Tell us how that particular, that's a very particular commission, or maybe unlike any other. I don't think many performers go to a composer saying, I want a piece like this. You might have to discuss things like duration or, you know, time scale and, and these kinds of practical things. But this was particularly important to us because Spencer Boney was the original pianist in the trio with Dara and a friend of mine in student days. And Spencer tragically died in a car accident, actually the year that he graduated, which is obviously very shocking. and. 25 years later, you can hardly believe that it's 25 years, Dara thought and felt that actually wouldn't that be really amazing to mark this life and our memory of Spencer and his importance to the trio as well, of course, in its early days with a commission. That then was a direct inspiration, not prescriptively, but David then went through the process of figuring out the kinds of questions he wanted to ask Dara, almost like how much information he wanted or how much he didn't, how to distill this. It was a challenge, I know, because he has told us it felt like a big responsibility because the subject matter, to be very you know, dry about it, is so personal uh, and also so relevant to everybody in life. So David talked to Dara quite a, a bit about Spencer. Actually, they were digging out some old recordings and it so happened that a very important piece to the trio at the time was Beethoven's Archduke Trio. So Dave took a very key transitional moment in the Archduke, which uses in the last movement. The first movement is this really driving, not relentless, but really full on, you know, propulsive movement. And then this middle movement that you've just heard a little bit of. Also, Dave for a long time had been uh, interested in the Bonnie Blue Eyed Lassie, particularly as sung by Bess Cronin. So you will have heard in that, he gave the cello the tune. I think Dara still is a bit annoyed about that because he would have <laughs> liked the tune. And I actually get to hum the tune, which is this incredible texture. But the cello starts off with this, what is a, a slow air? You can hear the ornamentation, but he was very taken by this recording of Bess Cronin singing where she almost stops her breath 
Um, and there's slightly gaspy sound as well at times, but those little inflections in her voice, which are part of her technique, I suppose, and also her interpretation, things are cut off. You can hear that in the cello bow. It's not that like Tim has no technique. He actually was quite deliberately duh, that kind of sound. And that, that was something that Dave lived with for a very long time. So there are lots of things that are personal to us. Um, a very human story, a very significant time, and then things that Dave brought to the table, to the fore that he was actually able to work with that he'd wanted to do for a long time. But then these extra, um, you know, dimensions, which then resulted in this three moving piece, very contrasting movements, actually, which is, is interesting as well from, from our perspective. But we feel that that movement also is very much like a standalone movement. You can quite easily transport people with that slow air piece. Yeah, I mean, when you describe it that, it's, it, it's so far from that business of form filling. You know. <laughs> there were forms. <laughs> exactly, there probably were forms, but I mean, the relationship between the trio yeah. and the piece there is, is so kind of intense. It must be a different process. Yeah, but I suppose you have got, we're all older, we're all 25 years older, you know, by then. So you, you're certainly very close to this person, this musician, this incredible musician. And I suppose at times I would be thinking, my goodness, like, I wonder how Spencer would have played this or whether he would have even liked it. That's not the point at all. But yeah, it makes it particularly special, of course. And that central movement, whatever about the Beethoven connection being um, so evocative. And it is also the kind of music that because of the material that he uses has a certain freedom to it, you know, and it is very much singing music. And uh, so it's very expressive in, in that sense. So yeah, personal, but again, it doesn't get in, in the way. It's, uh, it's yeah. an extra dimension. I, I mean, I wonder about uh, how fellow composers feel about commissions. This is kind of like a broader area. I mean, if you're watching Manchester City and you see uh, that uh, Erling Haaland is being provided with service by Jack Grealish, and you think, well, they're all on a team together. But in fact, you know, the rivalry, like if he scores, then you don't. So if, how does it feel when somebody else gets a commission oh. or when, you know, you feel you might have that commission? <laughs> what, what, how does the rivalry with working like with the Fidelity of work? <laughs> well, if we, if, we, if we were to get all of the commissions, we would have no life. <laughs> well, do you feel you're on a team? If you've all been commissioned by the same organisation and it's related to the same residency and it's driven by the same kind of spirit, do you feel you're playing together, I suppose? Well, I think certainly with the Fidelio Trio, because they have given so many commissions to so many people that you don't feel in the least left out because you only got one. You know, as Rona says, I wouldn't want, much as I love the Fidelio Trio and Mary, I would not want 15 commissions for piano trios from them. Another one would be nice, but one, one is good, two would be even better. But as a composer, you're hopefully... I don't always write music that's commissioned. I sometimes write music for friends or just want to write something. But I'm very happy always to accept commissions. And being a composer, you have such a wide range from which to draw. It can be for the orchestra, it can be for choir, it can be for a soloist. So there's always something moving about. And it's enough to have one commission on hand and maybe be thinking of the next one. 
So there's no problem if a colleague gets, gets a specific commission, of course, at any given time. I think there's plenty to go around from what I can see anyway. In fact, I have sometimes more than I can actually handle. And I'm sure Rona is the same. Well, in the last few years, certainly. Um, but I think there is more going on now than there used to be. You know, I think that there are... Particularly in Ireland. I, th I think very definitely, you know, within the last um, decade or so, things have, have grown greatly. There are also, of course, many, many more composers active in Ireland now, especially younger composers. So there's more demand for commissioned work for those young composers. I can think of the leading composer. He was a, a great teacher. I think he was Italian who never who said you should never teach your students anything. They'll only take the commissions you should be getting. <laughs> That brings us to the end of this special edition of the Culture File Debate from the Fidelio Trio Winter Chamber Music Festival. I'd like to thank all our audience here at St. Patrick's in Dublin, and I'd like you, our audience, to thank all our guests this evening, Mary DeLay, Rona Clark, and John Buckley. Thanks to Graham Tully on sound. We'll meet again on the other side of the hostilities a week from now. But till then, bye now. Thank you.